All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, uh, 42 through 47 this morning as we continue our sermon series entitled, My Life is Not My Own. Speaking of owning, uh, UCF, 56 to 21. Uh, well done. That's some owning right there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there might be a big blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And uh, it's on page 1159, our text for today, if you are going to use that Bible. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken to us in your word that you speak to us through your Holy Spirit and most of all through the person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus in this passage and our desperate need for his finished work in our lives as well as your ongoing work and the love that we have from our Father. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you'll bless our time in the Word this morning and make it a fruitful time that we might know you more and that our love for you would grow and that we would be more equipped to love one another and to continue our efforts to make disciples among our neighbors and among the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1960s, two doctors were having a conversation. One of them was a general practitioner. One of them was a researcher at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, the topic of of conversation was this little town uh, near where the general practitioner lived and, and how he was... Had, had noted that uh, it was a very healthy town, apparently, and hardly any of them ever had heart disease or heart attacks, while the average amount of the town surrounding was the same as the national average. And so he was talking about it. There's something interesting about this people, this little town, and why they're so healthy, why they live so long. And that got the attention of the researcher from the University of Oklahoma. So they started a study to see if there happened to be something about these people from this little town called Rosetto. Uh, that led to them being so healthy and having so few heart attacks. And so they, they studied data from over 50 years. 
And sure enough, it was very clear that, uh, particularly when it came to heart disease, uh, the people from Rosetto, the Rosettans, uh, were doing markedly better than the national averages. And so as they were trying to figure out, what is it about these people? They looked at diet to see if maybe that was it, but really they ate the same things people in the nearby towns ate, so that wasn't it. Uh, they thought maybe it's genetics. A lot of the people in this little town of Rosetto were Italian, but sure enough, other Italian communities in the area were uh, closer to the national averages. So it wasn't genetics. Uh, maybe it was healthy habits, but it turns out that the same number of Rosettans uh, either didn't eat healthy or, or, didn't, or smoked or other things uh, as anywhere else. So it wasn't sort of these particular habits. They thought maybe it's the environment, something about the, the water, uh, but that wasn't it either. And so they, they did all this work and they came to a conclusion. That's pretty interesting. And their conclusion was that the, 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 the thing that was unique about this town and was contributing to the actual physical health of these people was a very strong sense of community. They knew each other. They were known by one another. There was a very strong sense of community. Isn't that interesting? And that is actually one of many studies that show that we need community. We're designed to live in community with others. We need relationships. We don't function well without them. And it's great that science is saying this and finally getting caught up with um, God. <laughs> Who has said from the very beginning, it is not good that man should be alone. And so God has made it clear from the outset that we are Made for community. We're hardwired to need people, to need relationships. It's not good for us to be alone. Fish aren't designed to live outside of water, and you and I aren't designed to live outside of community. And what's so interesting about that, which just kind of shows, uh, once again, how both timely and timeless God's word is. Uh, What's interesting is uh, there's kind of an epidemic going on. And you can Google this later. I'm watching. You can Google this later. Just um, three words. The loneliness epidemic. The loneliness epidemic. Sociologists are rampantly trying to figure out a solution for the exorbitantly high levels of loneliness that people are reporting. People are lonelier now than any time in recorded history, uh, particularly here in America. And um, what's really Interesting about that is the loneliest people are the younger generation, the two younger generations, Um, the millennials, and then what they're now calling the post-millennials, which is so hard for a Calvinist um, because it's confusing. You know, are you post-millennial? Well, yes, no. That's a theology joke. But think about this now. There's 100,000 college students within a matter of miles from our building, okay? 100,000 at UCF, at Valencia, at Seminole State, Rollins. Um, and they are the loneliest people in the city compared, or, uh, according to these studies. They need community. But guess what? They don't need it any more than you or me. Uh, where do we get it? So um, 
we're in this sermon series and we're talking about this beautiful truth that our lives are not our own. If we have uh, given our lives to Christ, or rather if he has given us his life, he's given his life for us, then our lives are not our own. And we're thinking about how that reality impacts our life, uh, the things that we do. We talked about worship a couple weeks ago. We're talking about community today, how it impacts community, that my life is not my own. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us. If you remember, we talked about how that means that Christ's amazing love for us, it actually restrains what's self-centered in us. It's what enables us to live as our lives are not our own. And he goes on to say that he died for us so that those who live might no longer live with, uh, live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so really in this series, we're thinking deeply uh, about this reality that when, we, when, when Christ redeems us, when he washes away our sin, when he declares us righteous, all these things we receive through faith, he also begins this work of transformation in us so that we can go from our natural living for ourselves to a beautiful living for Christ which then in turn allows us and enables us to live for others as well. Uh, my life is not my own, and that's good news. And, and one of the ways that that impacts us again, as we're talking about this morning, is community. One of the central realities of Christianity is that Christ powerfully transforms his people so that we can both contribute to and benefit from genuine gospel-centered community. So that's our focus for this morning, that when we live for Christ and not for ourselves, genuine community forms and flourishes. The more we live for Christ and not for ourselves, genuine community forms and flourishes. So, three things. First, we'll talk about the epitome of community or genuine community. What can it be like? Then we'll talk about the enemy of community. Why is it not the way it can be? Uh, and third, the elements of community. In this passage are some really simple building blocks for us as a church to apply, to see the level of community here uh, grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, those three things. The epitome of community, the enemy of community, the elements of community. Let's talk about the epitome of community. Look back at this passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And just for a second, like realize how remarkable this sounds. I mean, think about this community, what's happening here. These are people of a variety of different ethnic backgrounds, even religious backgrounds from different areas. People had come in from all over the area for Passover. Now there's people from all over. And you have this situation where all these people now have become Christians. Peter preached a sermon. Uh, 3,000 people became Christians. And now you're seeing what's happening as uh, the Christians are living life. You're seeing this incredible community. It says that they were experiencing awe in verse 44. And then it says, and they were doing signs and wonders. So there was something even prior to that. It was the work of Christ among them. They had awe in their hearts. In 46, we see they were, their hearts had gladness and generosity. They were filled with praise. And they were gladly sharing with one another their belongings. Even selling 
their belongings in order to have resources to give to those who were in need. In fact, the way that they were loving on each other so well, the way they were living, the type of community that they had was so remarkable that people outside that community were being drawn to it. It was compelling. It was magnetic. And notice this is, there's no instructions here. This is, you know, people say, well, that looks like communism or socialism. Well, no, it's not. It's the reality of what happens when there's awe in our hearts over Christ more and more. We get transformed and we, as we seek to live for him, we become much more other-centered. And as we're other-centered, sharing our things or even selling our things so that others can have something they need is just like exciting. I mean, this is remarkable community. And I don't think it's in here so that we go, well, that was nice back then. I think this is the epitome. This is what sh- this is what is shown to us so that we can see just how powerful the love of Christ is in restraining our self-centeredness and in enabling us to really care and focus on the needs of others. You know, it's the, this day and age, it's like we get glimpses of really beautiful community, um, sometimes in the church, sometimes outside. Uh, I got a really beautiful glimpse of community recently. I was talking to uh, one of our members who's a police officer, and... Um, his very good friend and fellow police officer had sort of an unexplained, tragic situation in which he was in a coma. And as I was talking to the police officer that goes to our church, I could hear that he was actually at the hospital when I was talking to him. And I said, oh, oh, you're there right now. And he said, yes. Uh, we've made sure that there's someone here uh, the whole time. And the hope is that when, you know, because when he wakes up, uh, then there'll be someone here. One of us will be here. And he was explaining to me, I'm like, well, so wait a minute, when a police officer is down in the hospital, the other police officers take shifts to make sure that there's always someone there? I'm like, I, I want to be a police officer. Now, tragically, this brother, and he knew the Lord, so that's relieving, this man did die. But what was beautiful is this sweet glimpse of committedness to one another. We will not let you be alone in this room. We will take shifts. That's amazing. That's remarkable. Now, in their line of work, yeah, you better believe. They've got to have community. They've got to know that people have their back. They've got to know that people will support them. They've got to know that they're not alone. But simply what they've capitalized on is a need that we all have. We all need community. And this most remarkable, most amazing genuine community, again, is pictured here in the pages of the New Testament so that we can see that there's always more and even richer and deeper community that we can be experiencing as we, as a church, lift Christ higher and live for him more and more and more. So he, God graciously gives us what community can look like. Um, Why doesn't it? Let's talk about the enemy of community. The enemy of community. And the the answer, what is the enemy or who is the enemy of community? The answer is me and you. It's us. It's, It's the fact that we are fallen human beings and therefore we are naturally inclined to do exactly what Paul was referring to in that passage that we read from 2 Corinthians 
we're naturally going to live for ourselves. I'm naturally going to think about myself and my needs. And that's really a major enemy to the building of community. We were talking about this at the marriage retreat a little bit, thinking about the relationship between a husband and a wife and what builds that relationship. And one of the things that the speakers were talking about is how if we're focused on ourselves in marriage, uh, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to become more and more self-protective and guarded, and that doesn't help the relationship, or we become very, very self-promoting, and that doesn't help the relationship either. But what's interesting is both of those relationship killers or community killers are focusing on self. And as a guy who focuses on himself a lot, I can tell you, a lot of the relational damage I've rendered in this life has because has, been, has come from me focusing on myself. And so, as we realize, this is why we're called to focus on others. We have to be taught that. Right? We naturally will focus on ourselves. We have to be taught things like Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is something that Jesus, in building this new humanity that he's building, he's liberating us from our obsession with ourselves so that we can focus on him and then through our focus on him and empowerment through him, we begin to be able to focus on the needs of others around us. And it changes us, but it changes a church. It also changes the world because it provides a, a picture of what happens when people choose not to focus on their own needs, but just on the needs of others. It's like there's this, um, this old allegory of the spoons. Do you remember that? Um, the allegory of the spoons, it was developed by this Jewish rabbi named Chaim of Ramshishak. That's in Lithuania. And um, not sure when, but it, he basically described this. And now people have, uh, you can, if you go online and look for the allegory of the spoons, not now, um, you will, you'll see a picture of this. And what you'll see is what he described is like two situations that were with one big difference. And so here's the situation. The first picture, if you imagine, you got a bunch of people standing around a big, pot of soup and they all have these really long spoons the thing is the spoons are so long they can't actually get them in their mouths but that doesn't stop them from trying and so everybody in that first picture is miserable and they're fighting and they're bumping into each other and into the walls and soup is everywhere and they're just they're on their faces you can tell that they're miserable trying to feed themselves because they're focused on themselves and then there's the next picture and in the next picture, it's the same people, it's the same soup, same spoons, but there's one big difference. Instead of trying to feed themselves, they're feeding the person across from them. And they're smiling. And they're happy. I think there's even a hug in there. Imagine that. All these people saying, I'm just going to focus on the needs of others, trusting that my needs will be met as I'm part of a community that's focusing on the needs of others. And, you know, part of, part of why we need community is we're made in the image of God, and God is one God in three persons. And sort of the, the, where perfect community is between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here's what's interesting. Uh, think about the focus of the Father. What's the focus of the Father? The Father glorifies the Son and the Spirit. The Son glorifies the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. It's this beautiful picture of how perfect community happens. 
a focus on others. But how do we do that? How do we become more other-focused? How do we take risks and focus on the needs of others? What about me? What if I don't get my needs met? Well, that's the rub, isn't it? And that's where faith plays such an integral role. We have to trust that as I seek to meet the needs of others, my needs will be met. I'm going to tell you something. It's not a commercial. Subway has a new sandwich. And it's a brisket sub. Okay? And you might say, you know, Matt, you have Four Rivers right down the street, greatest barbecue in the city. Why would you go to Subway to get a brisket sub? And let me tell you why. Because I have a philosophy. And that philosophy is this. If there's brisket, I'll risk it. Okay? <laughs> it's so good. It's so good to me. Uh, that, and, and by the way, the Subway one is pretty good. Um, but I was willing to risk it. Here's why. Because, because brisket, when done right, is so good. It's worth the risk that you take in going after it. Okay? Now, let's get, think about this now. Stop thinking about sandwiches. That's on me. Listen. This type of community is so good. It's so good that it's worth the risks we take to do the things Jesus teaches us to do that brings it about. It's worth the risks. I think God wants us to be a church willing to take more risks for the sake of this kind of community. Maybe you're not in a community group and you risk getting in. Maybe you're in a community group and you risk bringing in new faces. You know, a lot of times people say, well, it's hard to bring in new people sometimes because we kind of trust each other and and it's it's tough. You know what's interesting about that? It's it's proven fact that it's actually, we think this is how it works. As soon as I trust people, then I can be vulnerable. No, that's backwards. It is when we are vulnerable with people that we're able to trust them and they're able to trust us. So let's take more risks of welcoming people in and being more vulnerable with one another, sharing the fact that we know we need Jesus and, and, and ministering to each other's needs. What an amazing opportunity we have, right? Why would we, want, why would we not want to move in the direction of this phenomenal community? And the best part is, you, how do you do it, right? How do you possibly say, okay, I'm not going to worry about my needs. I'm just going to go and pursue community looking f- to fill the needs of others. How can I possibly take a risk like that? By looking at the one who did not risk something but completely relinquished it for us. Jesus took no risks in coming to die on the cross. He knew full well he was coming to relinquish. Not to risk, to relinquish. To give his life as a ransom for many. And as we look to Christ and see that if he has taken care of our greatest need, which is to be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of our sins and being declared righteous in his sight, if Christ has taken care of our greatest need on the cross, that's what assures us he'll take care of all my needs. He's worrying about me. I get to focus on them. Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's where we find 
the courage to be so other-focused. By being Christ-focused, we become more other-focused. By being more other-focused, this genuine community begins to appear and it begins to flourish more and more. If we uh, are, are willing to bring ourselves to commitment to the elements, okay? The elements of community. Let's talk about that last. Look at verse 42. And I want you to show you there's four elements of community here, four major building blocks of community. And the beautiful thing is they're ordinary, just like us. Okay? Uh, let's, t- let's take a look at these things. And they devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, the fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. Number four, the prayers. And what I would submit to you is what Luke is talking about here is the way that as they were in awe over Christ and the gospel, they had devoted themselves to these things, to sitting under the apostles' teaching. Okay? Well, guess what? We can do that too. It's just now that the apostles' teaching is actually written down for us. So this is about Bible study. This is why when we're in community with other Christians, we want to study the Bible. We want to submit to what the Bible says. That's how we grow in our relationship with Jesus, knowing Him more, seeing his, the sufficiency of what He's done, the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we, if we want to see good community, we have to bring ourselves under the teaching of the scriptures. That's where we begin to be transformed so that we can also be devoted to the fellowship. What does he mean by fellowship? Well, fellowship is not like, you know, we, we sometimes in church you have the fellowship hall, but really all you do there is have coffee and a donut, which is good. I'm all about donuts, you know that. But there's something so much deeper, and this word actually signifies that. This word is not just I kind of know you. There's an actual intimacy in this word. Its root word is really a word about sharing. Uh, there's a sharing of, of life, of knowing each other and being known. That's where vulnerability comes in so importantly. So we want to, uh, but not only sharing, but then living out the principles, right? We learn what the Bible teaches about Christ and how he empowers us to live differently. And then we live that out with one another. So teaching and fellowship. Third, breaking of bread. Okay? Now, um, I wanted to spend a long time on explaining to you why exegetically I don't think this is talking about communion. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you, I don't think this is talking about communion. Okay? I think it's actually talking about having meals together. What happens when you eat with someone? It's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, there was an article in The Atlantic. Uh, first, it was talking about the importance of children eating with their parents. And it said this, Children who eat dinner with their parents five or more days a week have less trouble with drugs and alcohol, eat healthier, show better academic performance, and report being closer to their parents than children who don't eat dinner with their parents that often. Interesting, the impact on children when they eat with their family. But that's not all. It goes on to say that in her book, Eating Together, Alice Julier argues that dining together can radically shift people's perspectives. It reduces people's perceptions of inequality, and people who eat together tend to view those of different races, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds as more equal than they would in other social scenarios. Do you know anyone with an impeccable track record of eating with people? Because he's your king. Just think about the frequency with which Jesus would sit down and get people to eat together. And think about what was happening 
as they gathered with him and uh, felt friendship and union with him, but also with one another. Here again, science only catching up with God. I love that the Pharisees used to grumble that Jesus, he eats, eats with sinners and welcomes them. Praise the Lord, he eats with sinners. But we should be eating together, right? Amen, right? You can say that. We're talking about food, right? Uh, we should be eating together, okay? And then fourth, praying together. We should be praying together. Uh, and we do that a lot here. This big value here is prayer, but we want to just another reminder that it's all part of the building blocks. We want to be studying the Bible together. We want to be building relationships with one another. We want to be eating together, and we want to be praying with and for each other. And then the glue that holds it all together is the devotion. They were devoted to these things, devoted. They persevered in these things. And I think what we can take away from this is if we as a church will seek to do these things, if we'll uh, sit under the teaching of the scriptures together, if we'll build relationships, take risks in building more relationships and caring for one another more, if we're eating together and praying together, we're going to see community here grow and be richer and be deeper and it's going to be compelling to the point that people around want to get in. And we're going to tell them, hey, good news. Anybody can get in on this. In fact, what's interesting is it's only in community that the ways, the good ways that God has wired us get to really come out and and be a blessing to others. Let me tell you one last thing. You, You know the termites? Do you know the termites? Not termites, but the termites. The termites. Let me tell you who they are. Uh, in 1921, there was a psychology professor from Stanford University named Lewis Terman. And Terman wanted to test a theory. He thought the most important element of success in someone's life is the level of their intelligence. That's what he thought. Okay, He was wrong, but that's what he thought. And um, so what he did is he studied the test scores of about 250,000 children. Then he selected 1,470 and uh Spent specific or specific time studying them over the next few decades. The the reason he chose this 1,470 students is they all had an IQ of 140 or more. Okay, that's genius. So he's got 1,400 geniuses that he's going to study now because he thinks it's going to show that that genius is what's going to be the doorway to their success and their fruitfulness in life. Now, fast forward the tape uh, decades later, and he's looking at 750 of these. Termites, that's what they got called, because they were termin, termites. Anyway, so he's looking at uh, 750 of these termites, and he realizes that um, even though they were all geniuses, they all had an IQ of 140 or greater, um, he put a few, some of them were in what he called category A. They were the ones who were wildly successful in life. Then there was category B. They were moderately successful in life. And then there was category C, and they were people who ostensibly didn't have a whole lot of success or fruitfulness. And so there was a great desire to know what was the difference. What did the A's have that the C's didn't? They were all geniuses. They all were super intelligent. But what did the A's have that the C's didn't? And here's what the A's had. Uh, One author says, what did the C's lack? Um, So this is what the C's did not have. Not something expensive or impossible to find. Not something encoded in DNA or hardwired into the circuits of their brains. They lacked something that could have been given to them if we'd only known they needed it. A community. A community around them that prepared them properly for the world. 
Isn't that amazing? And so we have in Christ, through our union with him, we are united to one another. And as we seek to be transformed by him through studying the scriptures together, and then seek to build these relationships with one another where we care about each other in these amazing, remarkable ways, and we eat together, and we pray together, we get to see closer and closer we move towards the epitome of community. And why stop until we get there, right? And may the watching world see what's happening in our church and say, can we, uh, can we get in on that? And we'll have good news for them, won't we? Let's pray. Father, um, would you, for your glory and for our joy, continue the great work of shaping all of us into the image of Christ. And would you, Holy Spirit, liberate us more and more from our focuses on ourself so that we can focus on the needs of others. And would that bring about deeper, richer community that we not only enjoy, but are able to welcome more and more people into as we proclaim the good news to them that in Christ... They find all that they need, not just community. All that they need. And we lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.